We're continuing in our summer series, Practical Prayers, and uh, today our focus is again with Moses. Last week we looked at the first prayer of Moses, and so the prayer of Moses part two is, is today. And, you know, a lot of wisdom is ancient. There's a lot of ancient wisdom out there that you can find, but not all ancient wisdom is timeless. Not all ancient wisdom is easily relatable or applicable or practical to us today. Psalm 90, though, is a prayer that is a prime example of ancient wisdom that is timeless and therefore completely applicable. Psalm 90 is where we're going to be today, and I'll be reading from the CSB translation. This prayer in Psalm 90, you really can break it up into three general sections. You, we could break it down even further uh, and go a lot longer, even more detail, uh, but for our purposes today, I'm going to be merciful to you, and uh, we're going to uh, section it by, by three different sections, this passage and this prayer. So the first section, the first uh, general category of this prayer is that we're going to see the uncaused cause. The uncaused cause. And we're going to see that in the first two verses, 1 and 2 of Psalm 90. God's Word says this, and this is Moses' prayer. By the way, that that's also is most likely the oldest psalm, the oldest psalm in the Psalter. And this was written uh, most likely towards the end of his life, towards the end of his leading Israel after all he had seen and done. Uh, his time was coming to a, an end, most likely, as he penned this, as he reflects back. And he says this in this prayer, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. That word refuge, it's, it's immediately a wonderful word. It's a comforting word. You think of safety, you think of stability, you think of security, you think of comfort, you think of hope, you think of strength, and certainly all those things are found in God and and in God alone more than anyone else or in anything else. There's many times in our lives, and you might be in one right now, where refuge is desperately needed. We've all been there, we know what it's like to feel abandoned, to feel hopeless, to feel helpless, to feel weak, to feel let down, to feel like there's no one and no thing that you can turn to. Refuge. It's something we all want, we all need, we all look for. Moses says here rightly, Lord, you, you have been our refuge. And notice when and how in, in every generation. That means the refuge of God is not something that one group of people or certain people can experience while others can't. It's limited to this time and this place or that group of people. No, not at all. In every generation, as people come and people go, as circumstances change, God doesn't change. And the refuge that He alone provides does not change. And that is good news for us this morning. I want you to to think back personally in your life over all the times, over all the seasons, the years, the months, the days where you have needed refuge 
and the times when you have been able to look to God and find personal, not general, but personal refuge in your time of need, in your situation, in your circumstance. If you're here today and you have walked with the Lord any length of time at all, if you have been part of the family of God, if you have known God as your Father any length of time at all, then there are probably countless examples that you could provide of how God has been your refuge. He's been a refuge in every generation. Then he continues, verse 2, Before, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Do you remember who wrote Genesis? There we go. No doubt he was thinking back to all of the aspect of creation when he said this. No doubt he was thinking about all that God revealed to him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about creation, about all that God did. And Moses is just, he's marveling here. He, he's just captivated as he's looking around and no doubt he's seeing the mountains that he's beneath and he's, he's seeing the terrain there in the wilderness and the times when he was in Midian and the time he went up on a very specific mountain, saw something he had never seen before, a bush burning with fire but not consumed. And he's thinking about all the different aspects of the world that he would have known, the the great Nile in Egypt, this incredible river that was a source of so much life and all the different things he would have studied and come to know. Remember, he was taught by the most intelligent teachers probably of that day as he learned in Egypt as part of Pharaoh's household. He would have learned math and science, biology, all the things that people had learned and and were teaching. He had such a privilege in where he grew up to learn what others never would be able to learn. And so he had all this knowledge, and, and all of this knowledge pointed him to the great uncaused cause of everything. Pointed him to God. And he's just marveling here. He's saying, before the mountains were born, these great mountains around me, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, because I know it came from you, from eternity past to eternity forward, you are God. He's saying you're the same. And that's why I can take refuge in you. And in every generation, we can take refuge in you. Thank God for that this morning. Thank God for that. Next, we move into another section of this magnificent prayer, and uh, I have titled this section, Humanity 101. Humanity 101. It's lectionary in style, so there's a lot of of teaching that comes from this prayer. Uh, Remember, this is a personal prayer from Moses to God, but here's where the practical comes in. It, It shows us so much. It teaches us so much about God, about us about who we are and what we are and what we're not, about who God is and all that He is. Humanity 101 in verses 3-12. through We're going to be reminded 
of who we are, of what we are, and of what our fate is as human beings. So he just got done praising God for his eternality, praising him for all that he has been and all that he alone can do. Next, he moves in to the focus of man and the contrast that that we are as human beings in our finite finite state compared to God in His infinite state. Verse 3, You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam. I think back to Genesis, again, which Moses wrote. I think of Genesis 3.19, when God is pronouncing judgment on mankind's sin, on the fall of man, and He says, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Certainly Moses had this in mind, uh, and he's, he's applying this to all who are descendants of Adam. You return mankind to the dust, saying, return descendants of Adam, for in your sight, in your sight, God, a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. Literally, that's a watch in the night. A watch consisted of four hours. There were three watches typically in the night, uh, making four hours each watch. And so Moses here is, is saying, you know, time for us, sometimes it seems to pass slowly. Sometimes it seems like we're never going to get to our destination Certainly, I think Moses felt like that. You know, here he is with the nation of Israel wandering around in, in the wilderness. Forty years, he's seen so much that has not changed with the people of Israel. He's seen so much just continue to be the same. And the grumbling, the complaining, the questioning, when are we ever going to see the promised land? Why are we out here? Why did we ever leave Egypt? Parents, you think it's bad traveling with kids. You know, this... This would have been unbelievably bad. When are we there? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? Why aren't we there? Time sometimes seems to pass slowly, especially if you know there's something waiting for you and you're waiting for it to happen. Then other times, time passes quickly. Fathers, you look at your kids. On Father's Day, you think back over the years of of the lives of your children and the years that you've been a dad and you see how much they've changed, how quickly they change, how fast they've grown. I was just talking to somebody before the service and they said, my goodness, your kids have gotten so big and they just seem so grown up. And they do, they have. Happens fast, happens very fast. Moses says of God in your sight, a thousand years. I mean, we we look at a thousand years in our in our existence, and we look at back over a thousand years in our history, and we think, wow, look at all that's happened in a thousand years' time. God says, in your sight, a thousand years are like yesterday. Who remembers what happened yesterday? <laughs> the older you get, the harder it is to remember what happened yesterday, right? God says, in your sight, a thousand years are like yesterday. The past by. You know, it's like it's gone, it comes, it goes, it went. What happened yesterday? It's not really that, that important now because we're into today. In your sight, a thousand years are like that. It just, whoosh, it just passes by like a few hours of the night. Verse 5, you end their lives. They sleep. They are like grass that grows in the morning. 
In the morning, it sprouts and grows. By evening, it withers and dries up, much like many of us. Insert laughter here. Thank you. Thank you for the courteous, courteous laughter there. Now think about it. You get up in the morning and after you stretch and you work out the soreness of sleeping, you feel pretty good for a while. You know, you tackle your day. You've got that energy. And by what? Three o'clock? Three o'clock, you're shriveling up. When's bedtime? By seven o'clock, you're done, especially if you have kids. You know, it doesn't take long to wither and feel shriveled and, and sapped of your energy and your strength. And Moses is saying that's how it works for us humans. That's how we are. That's how the years of our lives are, and that's how we are. We're, we're just like grass that grows in the morning, and you know it sprouts and it grows, and by evening it withers and it dries up, and it's in need of, of some intervention to give it vitality again. My friends, we often, we often think too much of ourselves. That's really the point here. We think too much of ourselves a lot of the time. We can look at ourselves. We can look at our, our culture. We can look at all that we've achieved and all that we've accomplished. We can look at our own personal achievements. And if we're not careful, we can think much of ourselves. But we need to remember it's all about perspective. We need to remember who God is, what He is, and who we are and what we are compared to Him. And compared to Him, the greatest of human beings is just nothing. It's nothing. We don't even show up on the scale. Neither does our length of life. You think of Methuselah, the, long, the, the person who lived longest of any recorded human being. What, 969 years? Moses says, God, a thousand years in your sight. It's nothing. It's just like yesterday. It's like a few hours in the night. We need to remember how little we are and how big God is. And that should make us marvel and astonished that He wants anything to do with us at all. When you compare the two, what is man that you are mindful of us, right? This is something that carries over into the New Testament. This is not something limited to Moses' prayer here. This perspective, this perspective that we see in his prayer, this right perspective, uh, it's something that is found over in the New Testament as well, which shows us that it indeed is something to pay attention to and glean from and apply that there is wisdom in this perspective. James writes, James 4.13-15, through 15, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Many of us say such things. You know, we have all these grand plans. We have all these grand agendas. How many times have you said, I'm going to do whatever, fill in the blank. In three years, I'm going to. And you have all these plans. You map out your life. You have it down to the month or the week or the day. Some of you that need help desperately, you know, with your OCD. We, we all do that, though, to some extent. We, we have vision and we have plans and we map things out and we have strategy and we have these dreams of how everything's going to go. And in many ways, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. The problem is the way we often go about life. 
and our plans and our, our strategies and our agendas. It's as if we take a big piece of paper, we, we fill it all out with our dreams and our ambitions and our agendas and our goals and our plans, and we attach the times to them all, and it's as if we say to God, here, take this, I just need you to sign off on it. I want you to bless this, God. Instead, what needs to happen is we need to, with our lives, we need, to, we need to make our lives a big blank sheet of paper that we hand to God and say, you fill this out as, as you want, however you want, and my signature's down at the bottom. That's how we need to go about things. God, you fill in the details. You direct. You lead. I'm on board. That's what verses 14 and 15 of James chapter 4 point us to. We so foolishly do what he said in verse 13, today or tomorrow, I'm going to travel to such and such a city and spend a year there, and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. My life's going to look this way. Verse 14 says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Think of the fog that we so often see around here in our beautiful hills and valleys, especially around the New River Gorge over by Grandview. It's beautiful, it's stunning, and it's quickly gone. That's how we are, all of us, no matter who we are. For you are like vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. So in light of that, what do we do? Well, what should we do? What should our response be? Verse 15, instead of what verse 13 rightly says that we so often do, that personal ambition and and agenda and goal without any thought of God, instead, verse 15, James writes, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I thank God for my earthly father so much. He is such a godly father. And very, very early on, he taught me this principle from this passage. And he didn't just teach me this principle. He's always lived it out. Uh, There is never a time that I can remember in my past or even today when, as you're talking to my dad, if there's a plan that's going to happen, you know, like, hey, uh, I'll see you tomorrow, or I'll see you when you come by, or, or, you know, hey, you should come by the house, or hey, next week we should go and do this. He always follows up such statements with, Lord willing. Lord willing. Like, he's supposed to come over for lunch today, Father's Day, you know. This morning, he says, I'll see you this afternoon, Lord willing. Because he became so saturated by the truth of this passage, he realized that's going to have to affect every moment of my day. This isn't just words on a page. This is reality. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. None of us do. We don't know what our life will be like tomorrow. None of us do. We are a vapor. So instead, we should say, all of us should say, if the Lord wills, fill in the blank. 
That's what Moses was focusing on here in these verses. Still in this same category of Humanity 101, we're going to see the, now the, the reason for the shortness of our lives. We do return to dust. We are like the grass that's there in the morning and then shrivels by evening. We are, as James says, a vapor. What's the reason for all that? Why is that true of us? What's the source of our brevity? Why do we have such short lives even if we live to 80 or 90 plus years like Cormie and Earl, which we are so thankful for? Praise God for these men that have been given these years. But let's say they lived 100, 105. That's still so short, isn't it? Comparatively, compared to God, compared to others in our human history. So why such brevity? What's the reason for it? Well, verse 7 begins to paint that picture. And it's, it's a grim picture, but it's an honest one. It's an accurate one. Verse 7, For we are consumed by your anger. We are terrified by your wrath. So, anger and wrath. Whose? God's. That's the beginning of what Moses is focusing on as he prays here in this psalm, Psalm 90. That's where his attention turns as he recognizes his own brevity, his own shortcomings, his own limits. And he, he's now he's, he's thinking about the reason for it. And you remember, he's still praying to God. It's still a personal prayer. And he's saying, you know, the reason, God, I know what the reason for this shortness and fragility of life is. It's, it's because we're consumed by your anger. We're, we're under it. We're terrified by your wrath. And I, I think of what Paul says in Romans 1. In Romans 1, 18-19, he says this, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Yeah, humanity. People under God's just right wrath and under His righteous anger for our rebellion and our sin. And that is why our lives are not longer than they are. Our lives are under the judgment of God, under, under the response of Him to our sin. That's why death entered. That's why He said to Adam and Eve, you are dust. I, Adam, I made you from the dust and you're going to return to dust. You're going to die. Literally, in that account, he says, dying, you will die. You're going to start the process of dying now, and at one point, the process will be complete, and you will be dead. Dying, you will die. That's what every human being's fate is because of Adam, because of sin, because of rebellion. The child that was born yesterday, as precious and wonderful as they were, they are born dying. And at one point some point they will die. Why? Because of sin. And God's wrath and anger, just and right, is on all people and it results in death. Verse 8 of Psalm 90, Moses continues, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins 
in the light of your presence. Oh, here we go, right? Moses, you're meddling. Well, he's meddling in his own situation. He's admitting and acknowledging what we all need to admit and acknowledge, that, and that is that we might think we can fool other people. We can even sometimes fool ourselves, but nothing fools God. Nothing is beyond His sight. Nothing is beyond His awareness. Nothing is beyond His glance. You have set, Moses is saying in this prayer, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins. Everything we think is secret. You've said it. You've seen it. It's in the light of your presence. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. Don't you love the imagery there? You know, secret has the kind of the idea of dark and hidden in the dark. It's concealed. The light's not on it. The light's not in. Moses says rightly to God, there's, there's nothing that's dark before you. You think of what David says also in the Psalms. The darkness is light to you, God. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. I think again of the New Testament, Hebrews 4.13. The author of Hebrews says, No creature is hidden from Him, from God. Specifically, from the eternal Word, Jesus, there in that context. No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we all must give an account. Nothing is secret before God. All of our iniquities are before Him. Our secret sins are in the light of His presence. And that all affects and results in the next statements that he makes. Verse 9, For all our days ebb away under your wrath. Why is there wrath? Because of our sin. Because of our rebellion. It's just wrath. It's holy wrath. It's right anger. Righteous anger. For all our days... All our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. I was just privileged to have a little getaway for our anniversary with my wife, with Leanne, celebrating our 20 years of marriage. We were at the beach, which is my happy place. Love the beach. Doesn't matter what beach. Doesn't matter where. If it's a beach, the ocean's there. I'm happy. We were there, and you know, I just... That's, that's what you see before you. You see this ebbing and flowing right of the waves. And it's beautiful and it's majestic. But it's also a really good picture of our lives. As, as quickly as the wave comes, it ebbs away again. It's gone. That's how our lives are. All our days are like that. They just ebb away under God's wrath. And we end our years just insignificantly like a sigh. Verse 10, our lives last 70 years, or if we are strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Can I hear some amens to that? (laughs) Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. This is the condition of man. This is humanity 101. This is true of every single person, no matter how intelligent or strong or wealthy, no matter how privileged they might be, no matter how healthy, this is true of everyone. And then verse 11, he prays this, Who understands the power of your anger? 
Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Here's an important progression. Very important progression here in this part of the prayer. What Moses is praying, what he's recognizing himself, what he's expressing to God, and what we can glean from it and learn and apply to our own lives is this. Understanding God's righteous anger and wrath toward sin should lead us to having a healthy, holy fear of Him. We need to understand God's righteous anger and wrath towards sin. We need to get that. We need to understand it. We need to recognize that it's fitting and it's a right response considering how holy He is and how unholy we are. And understanding that, understanding His righteous anger towards sin, that should lead us all to having a healthy and holy fear of Him. And that, here's the progression, that should translate to an accurate perspective about our lives. Which should then lead to having wisdom in how to live to honor Him during our brief time on earth. You see that progression, how that works? I understand how bad my sin is. I understand how holy and good God is. I understand He has to deal with that sin. He has to judge it. He has to bring justice to that sin or He would not be God. I understand that. That gives me this healthy and holy fear of Him, which should then make me realize how small and insignificant I really am, which should make me want to honor Him and love Him and live for Him, and it should fill me with wisdom in how to do that. Some of you will remember uh, Reebok, the shoe Reebok, and their slogan, I mean, they're still a shoe company. It's not like you have to remember like they were there and they're not now. They're still making shoes. But in the 90s, what a great time, 90s. Can I get some amens right here in the front? Yeah. Um, in the 90s, their slogan was, life is short, play hard. Life is short and play hard. And though that's not their slogan anymore, and a lot of people don't remember that at all, that is still the motto by which people live. Many, many people live their life that way. They'll get the first part right. You know, life is short. Yes, it is. We've, we've seen that in this prayer. We see it in James, as I read from James 4. We see it over and over again in Scripture. We see it in our history. We see it in your own life. Yeah, life is short. But what is many people's response to that? Play hard. That means I've got to go out and I've got to grab everything I can because, yeah, life is short. I've got to live for myself really, really hard because my life's not going to last that long, so I better enjoy it while I've got it because you only go around once. What an empty, empty philosophy, isn't it? And it's totally opposite of how we should respond to our short life according to God's Word. And it's found in this prayer. Here's what the response should be to recognizing how short life is. It's not just to play hard. Look at what Moses says in verse 12 of this prayer in Psalm 90. In light of all that he has realized and in light of all that he has expressed in this incredible prayer, verse 12 he says this. You could also you could kind of insert, therefore, teach us to number 
our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. That's the right response to realizing how short your life is and how insignificant you are. Remember I I just talked about that progression a minute ago? That progression that it should end in, in seeking wisdom and in having wisdom? Well, that's what Moses is talking about. Because of who you are, God, because of who I'm not, all that's true of you, all that's true of me, teach us to number our days, to be intentional about our lives, to take stock of our time, and to be intentional and deliberate about the days that you've given us. Help us to do that carefully, with purpose, on purpose, so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Wisdom doesn't come from just living randomly and sporadically and however we want and living for ourselves. Wisdom comes from calculating how can I take the time I have and best use it to glorify the God who's given me the time. That's wisdom. And wisdom shows us and teaches us some things. And we see it from this prayer. We see it modeled for us by what Moses prayed. Certainly we see it in his life. But it's something that we all can and should glean and apply. Wisdom will show us this. Man's mortality is the result of immorality. Man's mortality, our mortality, which we all have, is the result of immorality, or in other words, sin. And as we realize that, and we recognize that, wisdom takes us further. And wisdom is in realizing our life could end tomorrow. And realizing our life could end tomorrow should cause us to make the most of the time we have today. Realizing our life could end tomorrow should cause us to make the most of the time we have today. That's the response. It's not that we should realize our life should end tomorrow and that we just sit down and we, we moan and we, we grieve and we mourn. I'm not talking about a fatalistic way of going about life. Realizing our life could end tomorrow is just wise because it could. But that should result in us making the most of the time that we do have today. Living to the fullest. Not for ourselves, for God and for others. Eugene Peterson, the translator of the message, once wrote about visiting a monastery. And while on the way to lunch, he and the monks he was visiting walked past a graveyard with an open grave. That's nice on your way to lunch, right? So they're on their way to lunch, and and he walks past this graveyard with an open grave, and he asked one of the monks which member of the community had died recently and was getting ready to be put in the grave. And he was told, nobody, that grave is for the next one, whomever they may be. So every day, three times a day, as they walk to eat, the members of this monastic community are reminded of what we spend our waking hours trying to forget, that one of them will be next. Medieval and Renaissance scholars would place a human skull on a shelf 
where it could be regularly seen as they studied. You might, maybe you've seen images of that, pictures of that in some fashion. But they would regularly do that. They'd just place a human skull right there on the shelf where they worked, where they studied, where it could be regularly seen. And this was, it served as a vivid reminder of their mortality and the shortness of their lives, which motivated them as they worked and studied. Closer to home, it used to be very common for a local church to have a graveyard right next to the church building. You, you know what I'm talking about, many of you. And this was not just a matter of convenience, you know, making it easy to put the, the body in there after a funeral. It was also so that every single Sunday when the church would gather, there would be this regular reminder of the truth expressed here in Psalm 90. That we're just like grass, we're, or as James says, like a vapor. My church growing up, Mount Tabor Baptist, that's what they have. There's a graveyard actually on two sides. They really want that reminder to come through. We need that reminder, though, don't we? We need those reminders. You all are familiar with the bucket list concept, right? Making a list of all the places you want to go and see, the things you want to do, things you want to achieve or experience before you kick the bucket. Well, here's my challenge to you. I want to challenge you to turn that concept and a list maybe you already have for the summer, like a summer bucket list. We do that as a family. Get through some of them. We never have completed one, ever. I want to challenge you to make a spiritual, a practical spiritual bucket list. I would love to see you go home and take the next couple days and think about if you knew you were going to be gone in, and you fill in the blank, however many days or months you want to assigned to that, if you knew without a, without a doubt you would be gone by sudden such a time, what would you want to know more about God than you know right now in the time you have left? And what would you like to see yourselves do for Him in the time you have left? And then write out answers to those. What would you like to know more about God before you see Him? And what would you like to do for Him before you are with Him? And, and think of it with a time attached. I think that could be pretty powerful in our lives. The other thing wisdom shows us is this, that God turns us toward death so that we will turn toward Him and find life. God doesn't just turn us toward death to make us miserable and depressed and discouraged and for us to sit down and, and just, you know, woe is me. That's not why He turns us toward death. That's not why death is so much at the center and the forefront of, of His Word. It's not why Moses focuses so much on death in his prayer. God turns us toward death so that we will turn toward Him and find life. And that leads us to the final section of this amazing prayer in Psalm 90. Our only hope. We see that in verses 13 through 17. Our only hope. And I want you to see, I want you to zero in and see such these amazing, beautiful contrasts that exist between 
all that Moses rightly said about himself and all humanity and all that is true of God. I want you to see the contrast with that and built in even to what these verses show us. There's contrast within each verse and, and certainly the overall contrast between these sections. Verse 13, Lord, how long? How long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. We need you, God. How long are we going to be left you know, to, to wonder and wander and despair and be discouraged? How long are we going to be under your wrath and under your judgment? It's right. It's fitting. It's proper. It's necessary. But God, how long? I know we're under your wrath for our sin, but how long? Turn. Have compassion on your servants. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love. See, God is not just wrathful. He's not just a a God who will judge sin. He's also a faithful God. He is also a compassionate God. He's also a merciful God. Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. The days that are limited, the days that are short, may we be full of, of joy in those days at your faithful love, at knowing your faithful love. Verse 15, make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us. Isn't that a great thought? As many days as you have humbled us, make us rejoice. For as many years as we have seen adversity. Verse 16, let your work, not let our work be on display, let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor, not our splendor, your splendor, let that be seen by their children. Let the legacy that we pass on to our children be not how great we were, but how great you are. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Oh, how we need His favor. Establish for us. Notice that. Establish for us. That means it's not something we can do. Establish for us. Something beyond us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. You could insert in parentheses even you there. You establish the work of our hands. We need you, God. We are fleeting. We are frail. We can't do what we need to do. You, please, give us your favor. Give us your blessing. Establish what we need to do and be in this life that you've given us. So what does all this mean? All of it coming together. Here's what it all comes down to. In our short lives, in our temporary time on earth, we need to choose, and it is a choice, we need to choose to look for meaning and satisfaction in the constant love and grace of the everlasting God. And that comes to us by Jesus and through Jesus alone. Romans 5.8 says God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So all of it coming full circle, my friends, it means this. Everyone will go through death's door. Everyone will. Everyone will go through death's door. How we respond to Jesus before we enter it 
determines what we experience on the other side of it. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this magnificent prayer, Psalm 90. I thank you for all that it shows us and teaches us. May we learn well from your servant Moses and his prayer. It is so practical. Help us, Holy Spirit, to make the practical application, the personal practical application from this prayer that we need in our lives. May we reflect the wisdom that Moses clearly showed and expressed in this great prayer. May it be true not just of our prayers, but of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.